This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Fred Gatchett talks about the source and summit of our faith, the Most Holy Eucharist. Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Cody Marincer, conducts the interview. Father Fred begins by talking about what it means to receive the Most Holy Eucharist. So I, I think, you know, what we, what we have to do is, you know, there, there has to be sort of a renewal in our understanding of what it means to truly receive the second person of the Blessed Trinity under the forms of bread and wine. You know, I mean, to use the lingo of the Church, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ under the forms of bread and wine in the sacrament of the Eucharist. I mean, those aren't, that's not just a jingle. That's not just words that we splatter around just to have something to talk about. I mean, either this is real or it's not. And, um, and the thing is, is that when you look at the, at the um, indifference a lot of people have, you know, towards their faith and towards coming to Mass on Sunday, well, I'm just like, yeah, if all that is is a symbol of Jesus, if that's just a piece of bread, I'm not going to haul my sorry hide out of bed in the morning to go to Mass. I can have a piece of bread at home and say that symbolizes Jesus, what i got to go to church for, you know. But, um, but if it really is what we say it is, you know, the most holy thing on earth, you know, I think, with, you know, that it really, you know, calls us to really take a hard look at, you know, what it is that we have and what it is that we believe about it. You know, I think um, in a certain sense, we're, we've been kind of victims of our own success in that, you know, I just got through saying, you know, the morning mass here at the cathedral and all around the country right now, you know, in, you know, churches and Catholic churches everywhere, you know, people are piling in for the daily Mass. You know, if, if there's a school, if there's a parish with a Catholic school, you know, the kids are coming into Mass. And, you know, otherwise, if it's a parish church, you know, there's people who are, you know, going to Mass right now, this morning. And I think, you know, we, we've kind of commoditized Mass. We made a commodity out of it. And um, in that, you know, people look at the most, at the fact of, the, the thing of going to Mass, the source and summit, that, you know, going to Mass, and then, you know, we just kind of go, well, yeah, you know, I used to go to Mass when they had it at 9 o'clock, but then when they changed it to 10, that just that doesn't really fit my schedule, my Sunday morning. That's usually when I'm drinking my coffee and reading my paper, so I quit going, you know. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, when we, we've, made it, we've made Mass so readily available, and, you know, at whatever times to make things as convenient as we can for people and everything, that now all of a sudden when it becomes an inconvenience, meh. I'm done with it. I remember once I was having a conversation with a guy there in Hayes, and he was kind of having a little crisis of faith. And I said, look, pal, you know, you can say what you want about the church or about Mass or about the Eucharist or whatever, but the bottom line is there are places in the world today, and there have been periods of history where priests have risked their lives to say Mass for people, and people have risked their lives to go to these Masses. And priests have been killed for offering, you know, Mass for people, and people have been killed for going to these Masses. Now, who in their right mind is going to risk their life and die for a piece of bread? Only an idiot would do that. I wouldn't do it. And, you know, I wouldn't blame anybody else for not doing it. But if it really is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, (laughs) dying for it, that makes you a martyr. You know, it's it's a very small price to pay. And yeah. at the same time, you know, here we have this entity, this, I hate to call it a thing because it just makes it so cheap. You know, we, we have this reality that is so profound that people will die for it. 
And then, you know, people will just, eh, I'm too tired to go this morning. Or, you know, you haven't been to confession for 20 years. I'm immersed in mortal sin, but everybody's going up and going to communion. I should go too, because if I don't go, I'll feel out of place. Yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, when, when we look at how, you know, I think we just, we've taken something that's free. You know, Jesus gives it to us at no charge. We've made it cheap. Um, you know, because, again, we've made Mass so available that, you know, people just kind of, eh, take it or leave it, whatever. So, I mean, that's kind of the first part of my rant and rave this morning. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. It's going to be hard for me to not sit here and talk with you for three hours. Um, um, as a convert, I, um, many of you out there uh, know me, many of you don't, but uh, Father Fred was instrumental in uh, my conversion. He's the one who took me through RCIA, and I was the only I was the only candidate that year, so it was pretty easy for me to sit down every week uh, with my wife and Father Fred and just to be able to pick through Father Fred's brain and um, have you answer those questions for me, so it was really great. Um, and I agree, Father Fred, there's actually a a really great uh, uh, website called uh, formed.org and if you go to the uh, present series um, and I think it's video number one in the present series and it talks it, it's a video that shows exactly what you're talking about and it starts with uh, basically what you're saying tell me this isn't about just a piece of bread and it talks about these martyrs who went to their death defending that piece of bread <laughs> and so yeah exactly what you're talking about well the thing that is AC we're talking about you know under the under the rubric of Source and Summit, we're talking about the, you know, the Eucharist, and, and um, I was just talking about how so, so, it seems like so many Catholics even have just kind of dropped the idea of understanding that this really is the person of Christ, you know, that this isn't some kind of a symbol. I mean, if Jesus would have wanted us to understand it as a symbol, he would have said, this represents my body, this symbolizes my blood, but he doesn't say that. He says, this is my body, this is my blood, and to me, the most... Um, the most poignant um, dynamic or the most poignant illustration of all this is in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. Um, the, you know, the first part of John 6 is a multiplication of loaves and fish, and in the middle part there's the story of Jesus walking on the water, and the next day the people come looking for him, looking for another free meal. And um, he starts off, you know, they, they, he says, you guys shouldn't be wasting your time looking for food where you're going to eat it and just be hungry again. You should get food that lasts forever. And they said, well, give it to us. And Jesus says, I'm it. You know, I am the bread come down from heaven. Well, it starts off, you can kind of imagine, you know, kind of like a, like a target with concentric circles in it. And, you know, the outermost circle would be the crowds, which is just kind of a, you know, heterogeneous mixture of just people in general, you know, Roman soldiers, Greek-speaking pagans, Jews, you know, whatever. And um, then the next circle inside would be the Jews. The next circle inside would be the disciples. The next circle would be the twelve with Jesus and the bullseye in the middle. And as you go through John 6, you know, Jesus addresses the crowds. Again, just this mulligan stew of humanity. And he says, you know, quit, you know, wasting your time working for food that perishes. Work for food that lasts forever. Well, give it to us. And Jesus says, I'm it. You know, I am the bread come down from heaven. And it says, the Jews quarreled among themselves. You know, how can this man say come down from heaven? Well, it's like, well, what happened to the crowds? Well, at that point, you know, again, the, the crowds are kind of going, well, you know, no free lunch today, boys. It was fun while it lasted. Let's go, you know. So they kind of drift off. But then you got the Jews. And Jesus has an advantage with the Jews. He doesn't have with the other people. And that is, he's a Jew himself. And so he can talk about bread come down from heaven and things like that and the manna. And, you know, those are things that the Jews will get. And so then, you know, then he closes off the section with the Jews saying, and the bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Is my flesh, not represents, not stands for, is my flesh. 
And then the Jews really kick back. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus says, let me make it clear to you. I mean, he says in John, amen, amen, I say to you. Let me make it clear. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. We never said anything about blood before. And the Jews are getting upset. And so you can see Jesus just digging his heels in further. And then he goes on to say, you know, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. The man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives forever, you know, and all that stuff. Well, again, he's all Jesus would have had to have done to calm everybody down, it's like, look, I just mean this symbolically. You guys take everything so literally. I mean, you know, you can see, you know, I represent the bread come down from heaven. My flesh represents the food, or the bread represents my flesh, you know, and so on. He doesn't say that. You know, he, he could have solved the whole problem if he would have just said, I didn't really mean it that way. I meant it symbolically. I meant it kind of in a representational way. And, um, but, you know, then the, you know, the Jews are, are pretty upset. Then the disciples chime in. You know, this kind of talk is difficult. Who can listen to it? Well, what happened to the Jews? They're gone. But now Jesus is talking to the disciples. And he's got a real advantage with them in that they like him. And they're used to hearing him say weird stuff like love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. And you would think think that they would kind of give him a fair hearing. It's like, okay, let's just listen to what he says. This will all make sense eventually. And instead, you know, Jesus says, does this offend you? You know, what would you say if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, and so on? Then after that, it says, because of this, many of his disciples went back to their former ways of life and no longer went around with him. So now the disciples are gone. So now you got Jesus and the Twelve. And Jesus looks up at the Twelve and says, gee, boys, we sure took a hit in the, in the polls today. Um, let, let's, let's form a, a study group. Let's have a, what are they, they called? I can't remember the name now. But, you know, let, let's, let's form a, a group and we'll, 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 we'll we will rework the mission statement here to make it more inclusive so it doesn't alienate so many people. <laughs> no. He looks up at the 12 and says, you guys want to go too? You know? And yeah. so, you know, the, the thing is, is the scriptures from the, the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where at the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, not this represents my body, not this symbolizes my blood. And then, with John 6, I am the bread come down from heaven. The bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And the more he says it, the more, you know, he starts off with 5,000 people, and he's down to 12. And he tells those guys, you know, I'm not budging on this, guys. If you don't like it, leave. And, um, and so you, you look there, then you look in 1 Corinthians 11, and St. Paul pops up with the same thing. I received from the Lord what I handed on to you, namely the night he was betrayed. He took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave, saying, This is my body. Likewise, after supper with the cup, this is the cup of my blood in the new covenant. Do this as often you drink and remembrance of me. Then he goes on to say, you know, the, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 a little bit further to say that before we eat of the bread or drink of the cup, we should examine ourselves. In other words, go to confession. We have to be in a state of grace. You know, we have to examine ourselves before we eat the bread or drink of the cup, lest we be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So you have sort of the three traditions, the synoptic tradition of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the tradition of John, which is always a little bit different, and the tradition of Paul, and they're all saying the same exact thing. I mean, it would be one thing, you know, this, this you know, bread being a symbol might work if there was symbolic talk like from St. Paul or if there is symbolic talk from John, or if there is symbolic talk from Matthew or something. But it's not. It, the, the Bible is 100% consistent on this. And so, you know, if, if, this really, if the Eucharist really is the source and summit of our faith, 
you know, we can't be fudging around and go, well, you know, this is just a symbol because it, 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 just, it doesn't work biblically and it doesn't work in practice because, again, I think that probably one of the reasons why so many people are staying away from Mass is because if that's all it is, is a symbol, heck, I'd stay away from Mass too. You know, so I don't know. I think that that's something that we have to look at. And in, in the second part of the of the broadcast this morning, we're going to talk and look at the look at the culture and kind of see, you know, what, what might be the source of some of this stuff. Something that I wanted to throw at you and see if you maybe you want to say something, but something that has always amazed me and something that I uh, actually teach in my classes over at TMP is about this. So uh, there are things called um, black masses, which is something that's done by Satanists. And what they do is they actually come to a Catholic mass and they procure a, uh, a, a blessed host. Uh, and they wait actually until um, after it has been consecrated. Um, and I've actually read this from a Satanist who um, used to be a Satanist, and he converted to Catholicism. And the reason they wait is because they know that it's not Christ until it has been consecrated. And they, a black mass is a complete inversion of a Catholic mass because they want to do everything exactly opposite because they want to desecrate Christ's body. And so it, it always amazes me because Satanists know that this is Christ's body, but they know that it's not until it has been consecrated. And here, as, as you've said, we have cheapened Christ's body, um, and, you know, 60%, 70%, whatever it is, um, of Catholics marching up, you know, like cattle in a line, and, you know, just give me my snack or whatever, don't say they don't believe in the true presence of Christ, yet there it is in John chapter 6. Um, we've got to send the truth out there. We've got to, we've, we've got to say, wait a minute, if Satan know and they believe because they destroy it purposefully for that reason what is wrong with us <laughs> yeah yeah well, that's the line i think from the letter of james he, he says you say that god is one he says, well so the, the demons know that so yeah, exactly you know and um and so yeah i mean and when you look in the in the gospels you know, who who are the people that who are the beings that recognize christ as the son of god first the demons you know, yeah, <laughs> and I um, mean you know, the the people that should be you know lapping up every word he says are just kind of oblivious and hear the demons. We know who, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Son of God, and so yeah, the demons get it, but we don't. That's kind of a sad indictment on humanity. <laughs> yeah, we need to take a short break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more about the source and summit of our faith, the Holy Eucharist. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture on Divine Mercy Radio. Father Fred Gatchett. Source and Summit, the Holy Eucharist. Cody Marincer conducts the interview. So you go ahead and take it away, Father. Well, anyway, just kind of, you know, what, what I wanted to kind of do here on the, the, the second half of the, of the program this morning was kind of look at, you know, some, I don't know, just kind of societal trends or whatever as to what's going on, as to, you know, how we kind of got to this point. And I'm going to steal some stuff. Whenever you're going to steal, steal from the best. There's a man named Peter Kreeft. Some of you may have heard of him. Um, he's a philosopher, and um, he, he, he started off as a, as a Calvinist of some kind. He, he said when his dad, when he was a little boy, he's like 12 or 13 years old, his dad took him to New York. And, um, and he was saying that he goes, I was just brought up 
thinking, you know, Catholics worship statues, and Catholics don't know who Jesus is. They just follow the Pope, and, you know, Catholics worship Mary, you know, and things like that, and they're, they're just wrong, and, you know, Catholicism is just a bunch of hooey and everything. He goes, but then my dad took me to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and I went inside, and I saw just the beauty of it, and I asked myself, how could people who got beauty so right have gotten everything else so wrong? And that was kind of the beginning of his conversion to Catholicism. And, of course, now he's a great Catholic writer and, um, you know, a great, um, you know, explainer of the Catholic faith. But his background, he's a philosopher. And um, anyway, there's, a, there's a, a book that he wrote some years ago called Back to Virtue. And um, I'm going to start off on, you know, on just on the very beginning of this book. And he kind of makes a pr- some pretty good points here. And um, this will kind of bring us into this idea of just kind of saying that, well, you know, the Eucharist isn't what it is, it's what I make it to be, okay? Mm-hmm. But he said, it starts off, a prominent Christian businessman is exposed as a crook and a bigamist. So he's a crook and he's got two wives. A historic Catholic denomination goes on record as favoring a woman's right to abortion. The second fact is even more shocking and more serious than the first. So he's comparing these two things. You, know, you have a, a, a Christian businessman who's exposed as a crook and a, and a bigamist, but then a you know mainline Christian denomination like the Methodists, the, the Episcopalians, go on record as favoring abortion. He says the second fact is even more shocking than the first. In, the, in other words, it's more shocking and more serious that a Christian denomination would would support abortion than a a businessman, a, a particular Christian businessman, you know, being a crook and a hypocrite, whatever. Why? Then he says, a brilliant Christian writer and pastor leaves his wife and children and runs off with another woman. Then he writes a book justifying it. The second fact is more shocking than the first. In other words, you, know, you have you know this Christian pastor leaves his wife and kids, runs off with another woman, but then which is bad. But then he writes a book and justifies it, which is even worse. Now he says, nearly as many marriages of Christians end in divorce as those of non-Christian. Most Christian denominations permit divorce, though Christ does not. The second fact is more shocking than the first. Why? Okay. In other words, again, you know, every Christian denomination has made friends with divorce somehow. And um, whereas Jesus said, look, you know, I mean, I have this over and over again. People will say, you know, well, why doesn't the church just get caught up with the times and realize that marriages don't always work out? And, you know, if people want to get divorced and remarried, it's their choice. Well, that may be, but it's not Jesus' choice. You know, I'm not the one, and the church isn't the one that said, the one who divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery. Likewise, she who divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery against him. That comes from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10, the words of Jesus Christ. Look it up. You know, Jesus is the one that said, what God is joined, men must not divide. So if you have a problem with divorce and remarriage, your problem isn't with the church, and your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the Son of God. Take it up with him. Okay? But... The thing is, is, it says that in all these above cases, the first statement shows only the perennial fact of hypocrisy, not, not, not of practicing what one preaches or believes. The second statement is something altogether new. They represent the changing of rules that make hypocrisy impossible. And that's the kicker right there. You know, that you change rules, for, for example, you know, is anyone ever going to accuse an abortion rights person of hypocrisy? Or is anybody ever going to be able to accuse, you know, the so-called gay rights person of hypocrisy? No, because there's nothing formed. They're down so low, they got nothing to fall off of. 
you know, if you, if you have someone that says, yes, I am trying to live the Christian life. I am trying to live by the teachings of, the, of, of Jesus Christ. And, oh, I screwed up. I messed up. You know, well, you know, it's one thing if someone messes up and then they fess up and then pick up and keep going. You know, hopefully we would see that as a, as a noble thing. Um, but if someone is, is, you know, obstinately preaching one thing and practicing another, well, you know, that's hypocrisy. The thing it is, is as Christians, you know, based on the on the, the the nobility of our teachings, we have a long way to fall. You know, if someone you know goes to mass on Sunday and has a you know a, a devotional life of maybe saying the rosary or whatever it is, or reading scripture, whatever it is they're doing, making a holy hour, and then you know so we find out that they've also been cooking methamphetamine and you know being a child pornographer and human trafficker or whatever, we go, well, that's just terrible, you know. But when you, when you look at, at, because they fell from a very high place, but again, when you look at someone that's, that's running around in a gay pride parade, where are they going to fall from? they got no place to fall from. And so, they're, then, so they're in the enviable position of always be able to point their finger at those, at those hypocritical Christians because they don't live up to what they're, you know, what they claim to live, what they claim to teach. Whereas, you know, we claim to teach nothing other than sodomy and ripping apart unborn babies, and so, you know, we got no place to fall from. And so, I think that that's kind of the first thing to look at is, you know, the the redefinition of what virtue is. You know, there there was I saw a kind of a a, a point for point thing. It says, first we overlook evil, and I'm, I'm going to go back and kind of pick these apart one by one. First we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we persecute those who still call it evil. I think that's a, you know, that kind of shows the, the continuum of where we're at. First we overlook evil. You know, who am I to judge? Just let it, you know, let be, you know, live and let live and so on. Then we permit evil. You know, we, you know, we, we allow it to go on. Then we legalize it. We codify it. We put it into the, into the legal system. Then we promote it. Then we celebrate it. Then we persecute those who call it evil. And I think that's kind of where we find ourselves now. And so, um, you know, the, um, that, that, that continuum there can, can be seen in, in all the, you know, the societal problems and stuff that we have are all part of that overlook evil, permit evil, legalize it, promote it, celebrate it. And then if anybody dares call it evil, then they get persecuted. They're the ones that get hauled to court. I think that probably the, the the one that just made me the most sick over the past fifteen years or so was um, there. I forget what the what the woman's name was, um, but she she was the one that took the the hidden camera into Planned Parenthood, and you know she claimed she was posing as someone that wanted to buy body parts. She wanted to buy baby baby body parts. She wanted to buy brains and livers and hearts, you know, and things like that, supposedly for you know some kind of you know product that they were going to make out of it. I don't know what it was. But she goes into some Planned Parenthood clinic, I think it was in Texas, and she goes, yeah, she goes, you know, like when you do the abortions, is there any way you can kind of, you know, kind of take it easy on the, on the body a little bit so we can get an intact brain and an intact liver? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, we can do that, we can do that. It was a Planned Parenthood clinic. And so you got these Planned Parenthood people on record as saying, yes, we will be careful with the abortion so we can sell you these parts. Or, and, the, and the, I think it was the same gal that went into a, a Planned Parenthood clinic, and she and some guy, and they were posing as basically as, as pimps. They say, "Look, we're going to be bringing these underage girls up from Guatemala, 
and you know we're going to be prostituting them out. You know they're probably going to, you know there's going to be pregnancies, there's going to be STDs and stuff. And this gal's going, oh yeah, yeah, we can take care of that, no problem. Just bring, but you know don't talk to Connie up front. She's a little bit strict. Just bring it to me, and I'll take care of it. I mean, here you have these people exposed for what they are. And does Planned Parenthood get taken to jail? No. The woman that was exposed to them got taken to jail. You know, she's the one that gets indicted by the prosecutor, you know, because, you know, you were, you were illegally gathering information or something like that. And it's like you figure, okay, you know, have, have we gotten to the point of overlooking evil? Yep. Permitting it? Yep. Legalizing? Yep. Promoting it? Celebrating it? Yep. And then we persecute those who call it evil. You know, the, you know then, we, then we, again, if this is the kind of culture that we live in at large, well, then no wonder people don't recognize Jesus when they see him. What can you expect? You yeah. know, and, or, or if you look, at, you look at good old Aristotle, you know, Aristotle thought that learning was a good thing, obviously. And so, well, why should we learn? Well, Aristotle says, number one, the reason why I learn is to find the truth. And the second reason is to determine the correct to determine the correct course of action we should take. And the third one is to improve techniques and technology. Okay, but Aristotle says the first ways we learn is to learn to find the truth. Now, go to any university in this country, even the so-called Catholic universities, even a so-called Catholic university like Notre Dame, which Notre Dame is about as Catholic as Joe Biden, as far as I'm concerned. But um, you go to one of these universities and say, now, if we bring our child, or if I enroll in your university, why should I do that? And are any of them going to say, because we will teach you how to find the truth? Or are they going to say, oh, because 96% of our graduates get a job. You know, 98% of our graduates, you know, have, you know, make this kind of money. You know, 92% of our graduates, you know, whatever, you know, it'll be something about, you know, some material gain that they have. And so if you look at Aristotle's reasons for learning, the first is to find the truth, the second to determine the correct course of action to take, and the third to improve techniques and technology, we've taken and completely turned it over. You know, the reason why we want to learn, the reason why we send people to school is so they can learn how to write a better computer program, so they can learn how to build a better airplane or whatever. You know, we, have the, you know, we, we, we teach them techniques and technology, the, you know, the middle one, because it's in the middle, it just stays the same, you know, to, you know, figure out the, you know, the right thing to do, what we, at least what we think is the right thing to do. And truth, man, if you find that in the, in the process, well, goody for you. If not, at least you got a good job, so it's all good. And so, again, you know, when we, when we look at, at um, you know, those, those two trends right there that the culture at large is immersed in, well, then no wonder people just are kind of, you know, lethargic and, and indifferent about, about you know, trying to figure out who Christ is in the Eucharist. Why would it matter? Yeah, exactly. And as soon as we dumb down the truth, as soon as we just kind of become numb, we just, eh, who really cares? Again, you know, just kind of getting back to the moral morass in which we find ourselves, you know, that we have this idea that, well, you know, it's all good, you know, what difference does it make? You know, one's as good as another and so on. And if people take that thinking to heart, well, then, of course, they're not going to come to Mass on Sunday. And if, if they're really taking the thinking to heart that, you know, that little piece of bread is just a symbol of Jesus, well, then what's the point in coming? But again, like I said earlier, you know, there are times in history and there are places in the world to this day where people risk their lives. There's something there worth risking your life for. And um, I wonder how many, you know, how many American Catholics really, you know, kind of take that to heart. 
I mean, I think part of it is just kind of the the the, the smushing down of Jesus. You know, we we've um, again I'm going to take a little line here from Peter Kreese's book. He says, "Why have we reduced him to a meek and gentle Jesus? Because we have reduced all the virtues to one: being kind." In other words, the only you know, if someone if someone asks you know if it's virtuous to be brave, is it virtuous to be noble? Is it virtuous to pursue beauty? Is it virtuous you know to um, to you know be self-sacrificing and so on? People might go, well, I guess. Well, then, so what's the most virtuous thing? Oh, be nice, be nice to people. You should be nice because it's it's nice to be nice because being nice is nice, you know. You know, again, we, you know, we, as Kreef says, we reduce Jesus to a meek and gentle Jesus um, because we measure Jesus by our standards instead of measuring our standards by Him. And you can see where you know we've kind of turned the whole thing around. That we, you know, I think the the psychologists call this projection. You know, we project onto Jesus what we think He should be, and therefore, since Jesus is that way because I just said so, then whatever I am has to be good because that's what Jesus is. It's like, but that's not what Jesus is. Read the Gospels. You know, um, you know, Jesus is kind to those who need kindness, but he's also stern with those who need sternness. He balls out those who need to be balled out, and so on. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 this idea of just thinking we're going to project onto Jesus that he's this marshmallowy pushover. Um, that didn't work. And um, again, but if he is a marshmallowy pushover, then why go to church? Why listen to what he has to say? I wouldn't care. You know, we got plenty of marshmallow pushovers. We don't need any more. And so um, I think that's, you know, you know, again, part of, you know, sort of a, a description of why we are where we're at. But anyway, so like I said, I think we're kind of sort of winding things down, running out of time. But again, just to kind of go back and recap a little bit, we, you know, we're talking about the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith. And um, that, it, that if, if it isn't what Jesus says it is, then we're all just wasting our time. You know, if, you know, Jesus says consistently in the synoptic tradition of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says in the Gospel of St. John, which is one of the Gospels, but it's kind of a different tradition, and then then St. Paul reminds us that, you know, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, this isn't a representation or a symbol. Um, This really is the person, body, blood, and soul, and divinity of Jesus, the source and summit of our faith. And if if it's anything less than that, then I don't want it. And if it's anything less than that, you don't want it either. There's no point. And if it's anything less than that, and if, if, when, when people perceive it as something less than that, then no wonder, you know, they don't want to come to church. No wonder they don't, you know, see it as a, you know, a great, the great gift that it is. Because I think it's supposed to be sort of a, a vicious circle of sorts in that if I can truly rep, re- recognize Christ in the bread and wine of the Eucharist, and I take that inside of me, then I'm also going to recognize Christ in those around me, in my neighbor. And then when I recognize Christ in my neighbor, I'm going to more readily recognize him in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. And the more I probe, you know, more deeply I probe into the mystery of the presence of Jesus in the bread and wine of the Eucharist, the more deeply I'm going to probe into the mystery of Jesus in my, in my neighbor, you know, beginning with my family, you know, with my spouse and my kids, you know, and things like that. And so the thing just kind of feeds on itself. And, um... And if, if, if it's not, again, if, if, if there's no Jesus in the Eucharist, then how am I going to see him in my neighbor? You know, or how am I going to know, like Jesus says, you know, what you did to, for the least of my brothers? You know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me, a foreigner, and you welcomed me, and so on. Well, how, you know, when do we do that? As long as you did it for the least of my brothers, you did it for me. Well, 
if I don't recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, how am I going to recognize him and be willing to reach out and help other folks? Now, the thing of it is, I'll hear this a lot. Well, you don't have to be a Christian to help people. Atheists can help people. Yeah, they can, but do they? You know, I have yet to see the United Atheist Children's Hospital. I have yet to see, you know, the, you know, the, you know, pick the town, you know, the Boston Atheist um, Soup Kitchen or the, you know, the, the L.A. County Atheist Food Pantry or something like that. You know, you don't see it. I mean, you know, I'm sure atheists can be a nice guy as well as anybody else can. But since they don't have, you know, the, the connection with God, and particularly since we don't have the connection of God through the person of Jesus, and particularly we don't have the connection of Jesus through the sacrament of the Eucharist, well then, you know, there's no fruits. You know, the, you, you don't see, you know, people reaching out and doing good and kind, you know, to people, unless, you know, at least in, in our culture, you know, unless it's, you know, kind of through the person of Jesus. I remember some years ago I knew a, a kid from Nepal, you know, the country over next to India that where Mount Everest lives. And um, and he was telling me, you know, it's, yeah, he goes, our, our kind of our native religion is sort of a, a, a blend of Hinduism and Buddhism. And um, and then I said, well, I said, do the Hindus and Buddhists, do they reach out and do they have, like, you know, hospitals and schools? He goes, no, no, the Catholics do all that. Which I thought that, that kind of spoke volumes, you know, that, that you, know, you, you know, oh, one religion is as good as another. Well, you know, I'm sure that Hinduism and Buddhism has a lot good to offer. Otherwise, people wouldn't believe in it. But when when you say, well, but in this in this Hindu slash Buddhist country, the only people that are doing good are the Catholics. That kind of tells you something. And I think that it all you know it all traces back to to the Eucharist. I know that when I was the the, the chaplain at the campus center for all those years, you know, we had up years and down years. I mean, you would have some years. I remember one year I thought we were going to have to cancel the crossroads retreat because nobody signed up for it. I think when it was all said and done, there might have been six or eight kids that signed up for it, but we, we limped it through that, that pretty bad year. And um, I really wish I would have kept a diary on this stuff because I can't really give you, you know, sure dates. But um, there, there was one, one year when the kids came up. I had nothing to do with this. I wish I could claim credit for it, but I can't. Um, the kids came up and said, well, Father, we want to have 24-hour adoration. And I thought they meant they wanted to duplicate the Perpetual Adoration Chapel over to Immaculate Heart. And I said, you got to be kidding. There's no way. No, 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 no. You understand. We just wanted just for one day. We want to start after Mass on Tuesday and close with Mass before Mass on Wednesday. Oh, I said, oh, just one 24-hour day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, you have to have people there twenty, you know, for all those hours. And one of the girls produces a piece of paper. We already got them. Wow. Said, wow, you know. And um, and I will I will go on record to the day I die. Once we got that twenty four adoration session going at the campus center, the campus center took off like a rocket. Wow! And um, that's when we started having to like for the crossroads retreat. You know, we would say, well, we're going to limit it to juniors and seniors because you freshmen and sophomore can apply next year. Because we, which is, we were, in fact, at one time we were thinking of having two crossroads retreats because we just couldn't handle all the requests. Wow. And, um, and, and again, the student participation in Catholic Disciples and things like that, you know, Father Andy's doing a fantastic job over there right now. But, um, but he's, you know, and, and, and Andy, I think, would be the first to acknowledge, you know, he's the recipient of the fruits of, ador- of Eucharistic adoration, where we recognize the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that's what got that going. Yeah. And, um, so that, that you know, the, just you know, the proof's right there. What more do you need? It's just as obvious as it can be.
Yeah, and I don't think by accident you used the word um, feeds <laughs> because that, yeah. that is exactly what it is. Is um, We have to understand that um, as we're talking about the Eucharist being the source and summit of our soul, uh, uh, of our faith, it is the source and summit of our soul also. It, it is what feeds us, and you're right. That's, that's what has to be what fe- feeds that program. Is there, There's no other explanation for it. If I tried doing this presentation that I just did over the last hour on a Sunday sermon, you know, people would be out there with pitchforks and, and torches wanting to hang me, you know. You made church go for two hours today, Father, shut up, you know. Um, but, you know, so the thing, you know, a Sunday sermon, you know, 10, 15 minutes at the most or whatever. But, um, but you know, on, on the radio station, you can use up a whole hour if you have to and really kind of go in and, you know, cut the finer points and do the, do the finer details that you can't do at a Sunday sermon. And if you're in your car or something, you can... You know, do a, put in the old windshield time. I mean, I hear hear from people here in Salina all the time. You know, oh yeah, I was listening to the Catholic radio station the other day when I was going here, there, or whatever. And you know, people talk about something they heard on Catholic radio, and it, it's great. I mean, it, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the wisdom. We appreciate you being on here. Uh, God bless you. And uh, would you leave us with your blessing today? Sure. May Almighty God bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon and be gracious to you. May he look upon you kindly and give you his peace. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Father. Have a wonderful day. You do. Thanks. We'll see you later. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. Folks, eternity is not seen. Neither are these airwaves. But you can save souls for eternity by going to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 101.7 KJDM, Lindsborg, Salina, 105.7 KMDG, Hayes, 88.1 KRTT, Great Bend, and 88.1 KBDM, Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.